This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Not long from now, on a cold February night in Iowa, for the first time, a young person born after 9-11 is going to walk into a caucus site and participate in a presidential contest. Now, if you've been following politics for a while, that might make you feel a little bit older, or at least that time flies. But it's a reminder and a marker that every cycle brings in new voters, often with a new and sometimes different perspective. Welcome, I am Anthony Salvanto, and on this episode of Where Did You Get This Number?, we thought it was a good time to play you our conversation about young people, a group we'll certainly be following throughout this coming year, one group that could certainly be determinative. Not long ago, I sat down with John Della Volpe, who runs the youth poll at the Institute of Politics at Harvard, along with his students there. So without further ado, here is that conversation. Hope you enjoy it. I am delighted to be joined here in studio by John Del Volpe. John is director of polling at the Institute of Politics, and he runs what is really the benchmark study for getting the opinions of young people, and that is the Harvard Youth Poll. And also on the line with us is one of the folks who puts that study together along with John, and that's Richard Sweeney. Richard is a junior up there. Richard, you're from Albany, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. And what's fun about this is, look, full disclosure, John and I are sitting here, we're a couple of Gen Xers, and we're studying or we're interested in the millennial generation and folks even younger. How is it that we do the right thing in getting the perspective and getting their perspective when we do the poll and the study? Maybe we know a thing or two about methodology, but the right way to do that is to involve young people. And that's where you and your and your cohort comes in, right, Richard? Absolutely. Okay. So you've been you've been putting this together. You guys now are out with your latest iteration of this poll and you talk to young people, that's folks under 30. And there's a lot of different groups within that and that's one of the things that's that's always fun to explore. But John, let me ask you, you started off your press release besides using the phrase okay boomer, right? Well, <laughs> Uh, it's marketing. It's marketing. Well, yeah. hey, look, that's the, you got to use the phrase of the day, right? That's yes. part of part of being hip. And and so but you started you said, look, when looking at young democratic primary voters, bold structural change is preferred, but not as much, not by as much as you might think. And then you look at this break between people who are taking looking for a more pragmatic approach versus this big structural change and Look, let's face it. When people talk about young voters, they often associate them. Maybe it's stereotypical, but with this idea of changing the world, changing everything. But you guys are telling us there's a little more nuance to it. That's the point. And there's a couple of things that this generation 
broadly speaking, uh, is unified around, which is the direction of the country is off track. They believe in the impeachment and removal of the president. One of the um, more interesting parts of this survey is our students want to understand kind of thematically what's next after Trump. And there was a lot of bipartisan debate in our study group, which accounts for close to 30 undergraduates. Should we aim for big structural changes that may be difficult to carry out? Or should we aim for more kind of incremental reforms, important reforms, but have a better chance of being passed. These were the young people you brought together to have a conversation? Exactly. The young people who are members of uh, of our study group, it's called the Harvard Public Opinion Project, includes close to 30 undergraduates. This is what we've been doing for 20 years now. And what we found was that overall, even among Democratic primary voters, there wasn't a broad consensus in terms of which direction to go. Yes, they were leaning slightly towards the big structural change uh, option, but not as much as I might think. And what I realized was that there could be a, kind of a sense of, uh, of values that are shared throughout the generation, the importance of health care, the importance of reforming capitalism, the importance of electoral, electoral college reform, gun violence, et cetera. But the pathway to get there has not been set. It's a more nuanced conversation. Hey, Richard, let me ask you about this process when you're learning how to do a study and you're listening for the kinds of language and the kinds of ideas that John is describing. And then you've got to synthesize those and put them into a question that thousands of young people have to look at and recognize and go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's my answer. Tell us about what you learned through that process and tell us what you got out of those groups. Absolutely. So the way the Public Opinion Project works is we start off at the beginning of every semester with about 25 of us undergrads um, sitting around a conference table with a bunch of big empty posters. They have like broad questions at the top, things like what keeps you up at night? If you could change one thing in America, what you would change? Um, And we spend an hour just filling those posters with the things that come to mind. Um, and when we, we finished that session this year and we looked at the posters, we found a lot of like specific policy changes. But then we thought about it some more and we realized all of those could be boiled down to sort of a single debate. How fast do we want the country to change? Are we in favor of more gradual incremental change or more sweeping structural reforms? Um, so that's sort of where these questions came from. And what surprised you about the answers and the breaks to those when you analyze the data? I think a bunch of us in the committee expected to see this division um, among all young people or among general election voters that about the same number favor the incremental approach as the same number that favor the structural approach. I think where we didn't expect to see a similar divide is among Democratic primary likely voters. Tell me, guys, what is different between the young people who favor the pragmatic approach and the ones who favor the structural approach? Because it seems to me that it's the structural approach that seems to get a lot of the attention. When we hear about young people and we hear, that well, they don't think the U.S. economy works. We've heard a lot of polls that have shown results saying things like young people approve of the word socialism or favor the idea of socialism more than previous generations. Those are structural opinions, right? So that's overblown? I I think we were among the first, uh, I think, polls back several years ago to talk about the fact that a majority of people under the age of 30 do not 
support or approve of the way in which capitalism is practiced today. It doesn't mean, and we said it at the time, that they are socialists. And that, I think, is actually a good indication of what they're talking about. So the idea of modernizing, making capitalism more democratic, right, more accessible to folks, is an opportunity where um, we can achieve real progress and real reform in the not-too-distant future. I think that's an example of structural change um, that needs to happen to our economy in the eyes of young people without being so dramatic that it changes the nature of, uh, of who we are as a country. That's a, that's, a, that's a good example. And we also see interesting differences when we break down the generation by age, by race, by level of education in terms of who's supporting structural change versus who's supporting that more pragmatic, feasible approach that Richard talked about. You guys asked an interesting question, should billionaires be able to exist? I guess that falls into the more structural argument camp, but what what prompted that question? That was a really memorable moment in the question writing process. Um, One of our students, Henry, it was his first semester with the program, and he mentioned this question, do you agree or disagree that billionaires should be able to exist in America? And at first, the, the room laughed. We thought it was a funny question. We thought it was absurd and something that would never make it into those top 10 or 15 that go into the poll. And then we all sort of stopped and thought about it for a little while. And people made some arguments. And 10 minutes later, we were sold that this is, this is a pressing national issue. This is something the young people are thinking about that others aren't yet. Um, so we put it in the poll And then after the poll was submitted for fielding, um, not three or four days later, um, Senator Sanders is tweeting about um, his doubts on whether or not billionaires should exist. When we were in New Hampshire, we heard young Republicans um, tell us unprompted that they were skeptical that billionaires should exist. Um, So I think that was a great example of how if you can get 25 young people in a room, um, they can anticipate the pulse of what our generation is feeling on the ground pretty well. Um, and probably a bunch of them think someday down the line that they may. When you get HubSpot Sales Hub, it's like getting a new teammate, an efficient, organized, helpful teammate who's also super easy to work with and won't microwave leftover shrimp scampi in the break room. Learn how you can close deals faster and crush your revenue goals with Sales Hub at HubSpot.com slash sales. Maybe one as, as well, or at least have a chance to be, which is always important. Let, let me... Let me ask about this idea of building a movement, which came up in your survey as well. In a relatively large number, the young people you talked to said that to achieve their goals, they felt like it was necessary to build a movement, in part to take on organized power. And I wondered, for those who feel that way, what is it in particular that they feel is necessary in order to change, to, to build a movement, but also what tools do they feel they have available, maybe social media, maybe organizing power, that makes it possible for them to build a movement, and why do they think they need one? I believe the reason they think they need one is they see in living every single day the largest generation gap in, Amer- in American history, at least in the last 50 years, I would argue, and one of the most significant political political gaps, um, the age gap, the generation gap, compared to any other kind of gap we're seeing in politics today. So this generation is seeing their coming of age with a fundamentally different set of values than their parents and their grandparents. And the amount of stress and anxiety that young people are forced to deal with on a daily basis 
um, is unlike, I think, any other previous generation. And they're looking for outlets, and they're looking for kind of camaraderie, and they're looking for opportunities to make a difference. We saw pre and post the 2016 election, we saw a tremendous increase in the number of young Americans who believe that politics can make a tangible difference in someone's life. We saw the only last time we saw that was pre and post 9-11. So there's buy-in that the political process writ large can change things. The combination of organizing power, as you said, social media, and frankly, being empowered by other people, whether it's the Parkland students, which only 18 months ago began to organize and made systemic change you know, within weeks in the in the in, in Florida, and, and and months later, they were, I believe, school shootings was the number one driver of youth participation in the midterm elections. Young people understand that they're the largest generation the world has ever seen. One, secondly, their values are just more progressive than any other generation. And whether those progressive values are for pragmatic change or for big structural change, they're still progressive. Two, and the third thing is they see the difference that participation can make. And that's what they're focused on. Richard, when you were doing these focus groups, did you make an effort to try to find young people of all backgrounds and also of all economic situations? And I say this with this preface. Oftentimes when we see, whether it be in the media or in reports, young people, they're often sort of portrayed as everybody's in college or everybody's, you know, aspiring to go to college. And, and John, you and I have talked about this offline many times. Not everybody is, and not everybody wants to. So tell us how it was that you assembled these groups and what kind of voices you, you had in there. These groups were a great complement to the group of people we usually interact with on our college campuses. Of the 12 people in the room, several, I think only two of them were in college, um, the others had chosen not to attend college or had already received their degree and were in the workforce. Um, and I think that adds uh, more depth to this picture of the, the student loan crisis our country faces. Um, hearing from these people, I think being in college is a tr- time of tremendous hope when you think, once I'm out, I'll be able to find a stable job and earn so much money. Um, up in those focus groups, we were able to hear the other side of the story where it's, I'm out of college. I have this stable job I was promised, but even with the the two-year degree paycheck or the four-year degree paycheck, um, it's barely enough to cover the interest on the loans and to deal with housing prices, even in an area like New Hampshire. Richard Sweeney, uh, thank you so much for joining us and giving us your perspective on this amazing study. All right. Thank you, Anthony. We'll be back in one second with more with John Del Volpe, Director of Polling at Harvard's Institute of Politics. John, you mentioned you had done a focus group of young Republicans, and I wonder, since you've been doing this a while, what is the difference between young Republicans today and young Republicans of, say, a generation ago, if any? So there are some differences and there are some similarities. So on issues related to same-sex marriage, on issues related to climate, young Republicans today are clearly becoming— more progressive. However, on the issue of health care, I was surprised. I looked at Trump voters today compared to Bush voters 10, 10 years ago. And I found that Bush voters 10 years ago were far more likely by double digits to believe that health care in America was a right and that the government ought to provide it if, uh, if necessary. Um, so it 
decreased over the course of the last 10 years, where support for same-sex, support for climate change, some of the other kind of wedge issues in America today have actually, the gap has actually diminished by time, between, party, between the parties, but not on health care. John, let me ask you, one of the things in your study showed that there were some situations, in fact, many situations, in which people, young people, felt said they felt uncomfortable discussing political views. And that was particularly true for young Republicans in situations where it seemed like they might feel like they were surrounded by young Democrats. In an era where we all sort of decry that things are hyper-partisan, hyper-polarized, and there isn't enough conversation, what, what does that portend? What... There's two. I think there's two parts of that question, Anthony. One is, yes, unfortunately, Republicans are just less comfortable being themselves, being Republican and being conservative in certain situations, specifically with their professor if they're in college or also, you know, in the workplace, et cetera. Um, That's clear. We've seen that over the years and a variety of other kinds of questions we've asked. And typically— I remember last cycle, it wasn't all Republicans. A Bush voter was as likely— as a Democrat to feel comfortable, it was a Trump voter or a Kane voter or, you know, um, other kinds of more conservative and less mainstream Republicans who were most sensitive to that. But I'll tell you something. Over the last month or so, I've been to Kansas, I've been to California, New Hampshire, Delaware, um, and other New Hampshire twice, talking to voters, sometimes on college campuses, sometimes in others, Democrats and Republicans. And people just want to have a conversation about, as, as Richard said er- earlier, about what keeps them up at night about what they need to get ahead, about the fact of how do I pursue my living, which is I want to be a school teacher and afford a house or an apartment without having to find five roommates over the internet, right? We had, uh, when we did these focus groups up in New Hampshire, we had uh, a dozen or so of our students in the back room that were watching me for the first time. And every member of my Republican group had some form of debt. Most were student debt. One was credit card debt. Yet very few were interested in talking about or certainly supporting the Democratic proposals for access to free college or free community college. And I said, hold on for a second. I don't get that. You have $100,000 in debt. You hope to become a chef or a nurse, yet you're not interested in a pathway to free community college, which would relieve you of that debt, which you could then use to buy a house, to invest, to do whatever you want to do. Explain that to me. Explain that to me. And they did, and I learned something um, profound in some way, which is that was they felt like that was their choice. It was their personal responsibility. They had known what they were getting into, and they chose that, and that it would be unfair in their mind. These are kind of independent-minded New Hampshire residents, of course, to burden other taxpayers with their own education. You know, that was a fascinating exchange. I pushed back on that premise um, for the purpose of conversation. And that was fascinating for me, I think, for the other folks in the room, and and I would hope uh, for, for our Harvard students as well. So let me ask about political outcomes for a second. We know that young people are often the subject of a lot of speculation. Will they turn out? Will they engage? What are you seeing in this generation that makes you think this year you will or won't see high, low turnout? Well, we, we, I think we first have to look at what happened in 2018, right? So we've been looking, you have been looking, we've all been looking at exit, at exit polls. And from 1986 to 2014, when baby boomers were young, when Gen Xers were young, and when older millennials were young, on average, about 16% turned out in midterm elections, okay, using kind of a more conservative model. 2018, 
They double that. And that's of the eligible voters in the age group? Yes, among 18 to 29-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Not only do they double their level of participation, but their share also increased because their participation rose at higher rates than other groups. Heading into 2019 at this stage, relative to 2016 campaign, we see that two-thirds of Democrats and two-thirds of Republicans say they are likely to vote in the general election. That means that 57% say they will vote, which will be the highest mark we've seen also in a couple of generations. And part of that also, we should say, speaks to the big number you've brought to us here. Every episode has a big number, and that is more than 70 million, right? It's about 73 million, and that's the size of this generation. Yes, 73 million or so, give and take. And if you look at kind of Young voters, and one definition of young voters would be Gen Z, which are voters between 18 and 24, 25, then millennials, and some would actually add Gen Xers into that. But if you add those, there are more members of those three generations, Xers, millennials, and Gen Z, than boomers and silent generation. 2.1 million more votes in 2018 came from younger generations than baby boomers. So we are at this tipping point Um, between boomers having all the political power and the opportunity for millennials and younger voters to seize that power as well. This is a 50-50 country, but it's not a 50-50 generation. It's a two-thirds, one-third generation. Two-thirds voted for Obama in 2008. Two-thirds will vote for the Democrat, I think, uh, in 2020. Frankly, it's having implications now. Kentucky and Louisiana, those elections, we talk about the suburbs. Well, you know who's living in suburbs today? Millennials. They can't afford the city. They're moving to the suburbs, and they're changing the nature of voting, even in conservative states. That's a great point. And somewhat picking up on that, when we talk about somebody's life cycle as you move through stages, roughly speaking, in your early 20s, if you're not in college, you're getting your first job, or you are in college— By the time you get to your late 20s, you're starting your career, you might be starting a family. This is sort of the traditional pattern. And yet we pollsters often lump everybody together. We go, okay, here's the under 30 group that encompasses, and, you know, full disclosure, you and I have talked about this, you've told me about this before, that encompasses a range of big changes in your life. What are you seeing right now within that cohort between the very youngest and, as you talked about, the, the relatively older set of the millennial generation? Well, one thing I'm seeing is not what people expect. Too many people expect um, the old adage that once you're, um, you know, that you become more conservative as you age. What we're seeing is because of what we talked about earlier, because of when this generation kind of came of age during this incredible uh, stress national stress around 9-11, the recession, et cetera, they're seeing um, and looking at the current state of the Republican Party, they're choosing to be Democrat, right? So these progressive values that they had when they came of age, when they're in their teens and their 20s, they're maintaining these and they're taking these to the voting booth. So among the most reliable Democrat cohort in America today are 30-something-year-olds, those older millennials. This is fascinating. John Del Volpe, thank you so much. John's director of Institute of Politics Polling. And uh, this has been a blast. Thanks, man. Such a pleasure. Thanks, Anthony. And that's going to close out this episode. Where did you get this number? And let me thank everyone here at CBS News Radio. In particular, of course, our great producer, Ellen Pang, always does a fantastic job. Maeve Burke, for all of her help making this possible. And 
As always, if you've got questions about polling, about politics in the upcoming year, we are on Twitter at WDYGTN. That's the initials, of course, for where did you get this number? On Instagram, we are at getthisnumber. And we all look forward to hearing from you and to a lot of great conversations coming up in the eventful 2020 with the election looming. Talk to you next week.